read a few verses from chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We began last time to look at this book, really more uh, an examination of how to approach understanding the book of Revelation. You know, some of you have been meeting with us for a long time, and we never have really preached through this book, and I'm not intending to do that, but we should be reading this book. It says there's a blessing to those who read and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written here. So we all should be reading this. And uh, so what I'm trying to do is just give some help in how we should read this book. Uh, we said last time that after studying the book of Revelation, there are certain other portions of scriptures that are important as we do that because a lot of, of the imagery uh, and the figurative language that is found in the book of Revelation is actually from books like Daniel and Ezekiel, Zechariah, parts of Isaiah, and a few other portions of Scripture. And we said that those uh, sections, those portions of Scripture, are called apocalyptic literature which is, uh, you know, a term we're not too familiar with, so I just spent a little time talking about that. It was a common form of writing back in the centuries prior to Christ's coming and then for a few centuries after Christ. There's just not anything that's really comparable to it at the present time, so it's strange for us to read this kind of literature where you have multi-headed beasts and weird creatures and dragons and, uh, you know, odd combinations of things that we are familiar with, like a, uh, a locust with a scorpion's tail, and on the tail are human heads. That's not something you think about commonly. It was not uncommon for first century readers because this type of literature was around then. And it's just that it's a little bit hard for us to get a grasp of it. So, in some sense, we are in a... A more difficult position to understanding the book than the writers of uh, and the readers that uh, it was addressed to back in the first century. Now the name, <clears throat> when we talk about apocalyptic literature, that actually comes from the the first word in the in the Greek text of the book of Revelation, which is and I you know on these Greek words I'm not too good but apocalyptic. A lupus, apocalypus, which means to uncover, to disclose, to reveal. It's what we think about when we, that's why we translate it the revelation. It's an uncovering, it's a revealing, you see, of truth to his God's people. The biblical writers meant that there was a divine 
unveiling, a God pulling back the curtain to show his work in the world to his people at that time who were in some very difficult situations. So the point that I wanted to make was that this apocalyptic book is a special kind of writing that must be interpreted in a special way. Reading this kind of imagery in an overly literal way will lead to foolish and unbiblical interpretations. So we want to keep away from that. The key to proper interpretation of the book is in having a, a, at least some understanding of the Old Testament references, which one book I read said there's over 350 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. So you've got a little bit of work, work cut out for you right there. If you're going to understand this book, you're going to have to have some understanding of the Old Testament references. But also, there, you need to have some understanding of the cultural context that it was written in, that it, you know, it would have been there for first century readers. We ended last time by saying that we should look, or we would look at some of the main ways that the book has been interpreted, especially in relation to a time frame, the time frame of various interpretations that have been around, uh, that have been used to understand it. So I also encourage you to read uh, some of the section in Revelation 13 and 14, last part of 13 and 14, beginning of 14, because we could use that, that as a section to kind of examine various time frames that, that people have used to look at the book. It's a very controversial section. I don't think Charles or I or anybody else that we ever had speak here has really ever uh, spoke on that section of Scripture. It has to do with the beast, the mark of the beast, and the uh, 144,000 that are spoken of. <clears throat> so anyway, I hope uh, some of you remembered to read that. We won't get as far as I was uh, hoping tonight because it's just too much to deal with, but <clears throat> we'll get into that a little bit. Anyway, that's where we are, uh, or that's where we've come to thus far. What are then some of the various overall views of the time frame of this book of Revelation? And there are four basic views. And, and I guess probably the easiest one, and maybe I thought the best one to begin with, is probably the one that's the most well known today. And that is the futurist time frame. In other words, that the book of Revelation basically deals with the future or the end times. The person that takes this futurist position would say <clears throat> that it predicts events that will accompany the end of the world. Most would say that maybe the first three chapters uh, are seen as referring to events of, that related to first century readers. You know, that ta that's where ta there's things to each of the seven churches. But the futurist would say, the person that takes the futurist position would say that the rest of the book from uh, the end of chapter 3 onward is all about the future. What that type of view does is that they take our present place in history and try to analyze the rest of those, all those chapters to see, you know, where we are right now and then what's ahead for us right, uh, you know, soon after. 
what's already beginning to take place of, of the, these chapters in Revolution, Revelation and then what will come later. The most common form of this would be the dispensationalist teaching that started around the 19th century and it was made popular by the Schofield Reference Bible and then has now come down to us today in, oh, for instance, all the left-behind uh, books and movies and that type of thing. It's primarily presented today as a uh, premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture position. What uh, trying to say, you know, when the rapture is going to be and who's going to be involved, and you know, the Antichrist, the Beast, uh, all the things that uh, I'm sure you've heard some of anyway. That would be the futurist position. Now, the other end of the spectrum would be the preterist. Now, there's probably another word is new to some of you. It was new to me. Preterist, it comes, actually, that word comes from uh, a Latin word which means past. And the preterist view of the book is that John was writing to Christians in Asia Minor, those seven churches that he talks about, those were churches in modern-day Turkey, uh, to give them hope about events that would occur in their time, in their lifetime, and not writing about events that would happen thousands of years in the future. So see, the, the preterist says it's all past, or it's mostly all past. The book, by and large, is, is uh, something that has happened in the past. It's a symbolic account of the first century church's struggle with Jewish opposition and Roman persecution. And the symbols that we see in the book are drawn from ancient texts as well as contemporary culture to show the plight of the church and encourage its members through these troubling times, the times of, of persecution, the times of tribulation. One thing that's kind of uh, important to the futurist position and the preterist, uh, preterist position is when you date the book. The Futurist dates the book from around 96 A.D. The Preterist says that it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, which was in 70 A.D. That's, that's when all the other books of the New Testament were written, before 70 A.D. Well, the, the Preterist says that Revelation, just like the rest of the books, were written before uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the, and the destruction of the temple. <clears throat> the main burden of the book is that Christ will soon judge the whole apostate system of Jewish worship, and although the persecution by the Roman Empire will be intense, it will also be judged. But that was to strengthen and encourage the early church, uh, the church there of the first century that's identified as the the one to whom the book was written, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Usually in this uh, type of interpretation, the, the uh, beast is identified as uh, the Roman Empire or, or one of the particular Roman emperors. And the, the whole, your whole outlook is different if you think, as you read through the book, if you start reading it in terms of most of this being passed. Now, I will say this, that the preterist, there's, there's a full preterist, which really I don't think is, is even an orthodox teaching. 
because they teach the whole book is already passed. Even the last three or four chapters, which talk about the new heaven and the new earth, that has to be, I think, judged as a mistaken interpretation. The, the other preterist position is called a partial preterist, and they say that most of the book has already taken place except for the last four chapters, which talk about the new heavens and the new earth and the second coming of Christ. The, the emphasis that the preterist puts on the time frame or the, 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 the verses that speak of the time frame in the actual book is important. For instance, we already read it uh, in, in verse 1. John says, things which must shortly take place. And then in verse 3, it says, for the time is near. And then if if you skip over to the end of the book, chapter 22, you see in verse 6, he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And then chapter, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And they, the, the uh, preterist would bring out how that in Daniel he was told to seal up the words of the book. But here, now, the, the writer is told not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. They take those verses as very significant in terms of the time frame that we're supposed to think about of uh, the writing of this book and who, how we're to understand it. Uh, the uh, preterist position, or at least some form of it, the partial preterist position, is held today by men like Jay Adams, Gary DeMar, Kenneth Gentry, Gary North, Greg Banson, and R.C. Sproul. So, you know, it's not like this is just some outlandish position. There's some very good men that hold this. Then, the, the third position that I want to tell you about is the historicist. Historicist, if I'm saying it right. The idea is that you have in the book of Revelation kind of a road map or a blueprint of all of world history. It maintains that the prophetic fulfillment occurs all through the church age. In other words, as you read through the book of Revelation, you're kind of seeing a history of the world, you see especially a spiritual history or uh, a history related to the church. And uh, it does allow for more than one fulfillment of some of the prophecies. It might, something might happen once and then there'll be a partial fulfillment and then maybe more of a fulfillment later. The meaning of the symbols are found in the events of the history of the world. Uh, some hold that most of those are past. Some hold that there's most of them are present. Uh, some would say that it's, some of it's still future. 
but all of the book is a symbolic account of the whole scope of world history. And in this type of framework, you have the beast identified by various historical figures like uh, the popes or Muhammad or Adolf Hitler. I mean, people have filled in the blanks in a lot of ways as they're trying to read the book, look at world history and say, okay, this, this seems to fit that. And it's caused a great deal of speculation. The, the view actually arose in the Middle Ages and it was adopted by many of the reformers in the 16th century. Martin Luther popularized the idea that the beast was the Roman Catholic Pope. Of course, the Catholic theologians said that Luther was the beast. Some who take this position say that the seven churches addressed in, in Revelation is a... Uh, a symbolic way of showing kind of the different phases of Christianity from the time of John to the second coming of Christ. In other words, uh, even the, even the uh, seven churches uh, aren't lo looked at mainly as in the past, but kind of a symbolic way of, of viewing all of the, the church age, the different manifestations and problems that the church has gone through through the ages. So that's a historicist position. And then the idealist position, this is the last one, says that this book contains truth about eternal principles that are important for Christians down through the ages. It's rooted in the historical setting of the first century church, but it contains a message that transcends that setting. It illustrates the struggles of the early church, the abiding spiritual principles by which uh, we should apply or that we should apply to life uh, as Christians in any age that we're living. The symbols can refer to a specific per people or events in time, for example, the Emperor Nero, but they also become symbols for a larger reality. For instance, the beast uh, who might symbolize Nero is would also symbolize uh, the the tyrants uh, that Christians find themselves having to deal with down through the ages, their destructive ways. I would say this about all four positions. True Christians have embraced all of these positions, and there should be a place amongst Christians for honest debate and uh, discussion and even disagreement about those different views of the book. Actually, I think a combination of some of these views is possible and probably the most helpful approach to this very important and somewhat difficult book, a combination of some of these four positions that I, I've mentioned. With that as kind of an introduction, let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. We'll just read, skip around here just a little bit. Um, Re Re Revelation 13, because we're going to talk about the beast a little bit here. Revelation 13, verse 1, And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, 
and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, I said last time, there's a few of the symbols that we shouldn't have trouble with even in the 21st century, and one of them is the dragon. We know that that's Satan. So when it says that the dragon uh, gave him his power, this beast his power, and his throne and great authority, we know that ultimately the authority of this beast comes from Satan. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And uh, let's then skip down, just because we don't have time to read all of this. Let's skip down to 16. Speaking of the beast, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free man and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark either of the name of the beast or the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So there's that famous 666. But I want to go on and read here the first five verses of 14 because, as you know, these chapter divisions weren't in the Bible uh, as it was written. And I think there's a real flow here between what we've just read and the 144,000. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four, the four living creatures and elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless." Here you have the beast with this number 666. Then you have the lamb and the 444,000 who uh, have been uh, redeemed. The question then, of course, comes, who was this beast or who is this beast and what is the mark of the beast? And this is not the only section that this mark of the beast is spoken of, it's actually quite amazing how often uh, this subject comes up in the book of Revelation. You have it in 14.9, and another angel, a third one, followed them, saying in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or hand, 
he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Uh, so you've got this warning about not having this mark of the beast. Well, I, I should have read on here, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image and who re- have received, and who, whoever received the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 15.2 And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass. 16.2 And the first angel went and poured out his bowl up, uh, into the earth, and it became loathsome and malignant sores upon men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. 19.20 And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. And then 20... Chapter 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast and his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this, this thing of the beast... And the mark of the beast is a significant thing in the book of Revelation. And as you know, there's been much speculation about this topic. I'm sure you, you're aware of some of the people that have been put forward as being the beast uh, down through history. Uh, there's been a lot of you know, well-known leaders. And I think even at the present time, we probably have some people that... candidates for this dubious distinction of being the beast. And as far as the mark of the beast, right now in our 21st century with all our technology, there's all kinds of people that are pointing to things like barcodes and uh, computer chips and biochips that are implanted in your skin and GPS tracking, you know, those are all candidates for the mark of the beast. Uh, Not that long ago, uh, one of the splinter groups off Christianity uh, said that uh, actually Sunday worship was the mark of the beast. So you can have quite a few things that take that distinction. But in reality, I actually think that the preterists can give us some help here. The people who say that a lot of the book of Revelation has to do with the past. And I want to show you why that is. First of all, John told the people that he was writing to that if they had understanding, they could calculate the number of the beast and that it was the number of a man. So he was telling those, John was telling the people that received this book 
if they had understanding, they'd be able to understand this. So it can't possibly be something in the 21st century, right? There's no way they could understand that. Now, what was he talking about then if there was something at that time that they could understand? Well, when the name Nero Caesar is transliterated from Greek back into Hebrew, taken from the Greek into the Hebrew, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are used to represent numbers. If you take the, uh, the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, apply them to the name Nero Caesar when it's written in Hebrew. Now, it's, you know, this is difficult for us. We don't speak Greek, we don't speak Hebrew, and we don't usually associate uh, letters with numbers, but this was not uncommon at the time to do this. Well, what do you end up with? Well, you end up with 666. Nero Caesar in Hebrew is 666 when you put the letter, numbers to the letters. Now, that's significant, I think. Another interesting thing, if you... Uh, turn back to a section that we're reading here in 13. And in verse 18, there's a footnote. You see, uh, with the number, uh, right at the end of verse 18, with the number 666, if you have a New American Standard Bible and look at the little footnote there for eight, uh, verse 18, it says, Some manuscripts read 616 instead of 666. Some manuscripts that they found have 616. Why, you know, why could that be? Well, here's, here's a very interesting thing. If you take the Latin spelling of Nero Caesar and transliterate it back into Hebrew, it yields 616 which uh, is what this variant reading of the New Testament manuscripts is. So I think that's, I mean, that's pretty significant when you have both of those numbers leading back to uh, Nero Caesar. The other thing to note if, as you read back in the history of that time, he fits this description of the beast so well. Um, According to one early writer, he murdered his, and this was, you know, contemporary writer, he murdered his parents, his wife, his brother, his aunt, and many others close to him who had high positions there in Rome. He was a torturer, a homosexual, and the one who initiated the war against the Jews, Jerusalem there, uh, that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He was Caesar from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. He was the sixth emperor of Rome, the place where it talks about five had fallen, one is, and he was the one who is. Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius and Nero. So he was the sixth emperor of Rome. Now, the persecution which he initiated in 64 AD was the first real Roman assault on Christianity, 
assault from the Roman Empire on Christianity. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was a contemporary, spoke of Nero's cruel nature and that he put to death so many innocent men. He records the scene in Rome when the persecution of Christians broke out and their death was aggravated, this is a quote, with mockeries insomuch that he wrapped the Christians in the hides of wild beasts and put them out where they'd be torn apart by dogs. I mean, these are terrible things. Some of this stuff you hardly want to uh, read. He fastened them to crosses, which he said set fire at night. Christians were crucified, beheaded, burned alive, used as torches. So, historically, Nero was one that persecuted Christians beyond all comparison. He would fit this description of being a beast. John was uh, banished to Patmos uh, in this time. If you take the early date for, for uh, the book of Revelation, the apostle Paul was tortured and beheaded according to uh, church tradition under Nero. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down under the, apostle, or under the, the uh, emperor, did I say apostle Nero, emperor Nero. Uh, so all this was happening under Nero. Uh, the church uh, historian Eusebius said Nero was the first of the emperor, emperors who showed himself an enemy of, of divine religion. The Roman uh, writer Pliny the Elder described Nero as the destroyer of the human race and the poison of the world. The uh, Roman satirist Juvenal spoke of Nero's cruel and bloody tyranny. And then also a contemporary pagan writer named Apollonius specifically calls Nero a beast. It was a long quote, I won't read it. But I'm saying all this to say that if you look at this first century situation, Nero fits the bill of what John is writing about here. In Revelation 13, 7, the beast is said to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Well, this was happening, you see. This is what uh, Nero was doing. Also, Revelation 13, 5 says that the beast would conduct such blasphemous warfare uh, for a specific uh, on a time, 42 months. And Nero's persecution was instituted in 64 AD and lasted until his death, which he committed suicide, uh, in June 68 AD, which was three and a half years or 42 months. So again, he fits the role uh, completely in terms of what's presented in the scriptures. Another interesting thing that you can learn from church history is that when Nero died, when he committed suicide, it was in the middle of the time when Jerusalem was under siege. Vespasian was the, the general that was in charge of that siege, and he stopped the siege when, when Nero committed suicide and came back to Rome to, you know, try to fight for his place as being the new emperor. 
So in that time period when the siege was briefly stopped, the Christians fled from Jerusalem and went to a place called Pella. Why did they do that? Turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21 and verse 20. They did that because they knew what Jesus said. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city. In other words, get out of there. Get out of here. You might say head for the hills. Uh, they they took that as literal. When you because these armies are surrounding Jerusalem, get out of there. Well, they did in this little interval when uh, when uh, this Roman general Vespasian came back to Rome right after Nero died. The problem was that the Jews thought that this withdrawal was a sign that God was with them and was going to bring victory, and so they all gathered more into Jerusalem. Plus, it was a time of uh, the festival there in, in Jerusalem, one of the Jewish festivals. So, when the Romans came back, they destroyed the city, and there's some terrible accounts of the devastation that took place in 70 AD, because uh, there was over a million people crowded into this city at that time. They starved them to death. People were, you know, dying of hunger, hunger eating, actually eating one another uh, and their own children. I mean, it was bad. It was terrible, the situation that uh, took place. So what I'm trying to say by all this is that some of this book is best understood by knowing the cultural and historical setting that was the case at the time that it was written. And we don't need to speculate about this 666 because we know from history and from what we can learn from the scriptures what what, uh, John is referring to. So in this case, certainly the preterist position is the proper one. There shouldn't be any doubt about the beast, the identification of the beast. He was writing to first century, John was writing to first century Christians, warning them of things that were shortly to take place. What was happening is really, I think you could say it this way, they were, those Christians uh, in that situation were engaged in one of the most critical spiritual battle, battles of history. Why is that the case? Well, because the dragon, Satan, was using an evil empire, Rome, to try to wipe out the infant church. And it seemed like, if you were in that situation, how could they possibly survive? How can Christianity survive with the whole Roman Empire empowered by the dragon, Satan, but we know that it did survive, and they knew it would survive. They knew that God was going to bring his people through this one way or the other. 
Christ would be victorious. So the book, the purpose of Revelation in this in this account here that we're looking at, and I think in overall, it was to comfort the church with the assurance that God was in control, and that even the great might of the dragon and the beast would not stand before the power of Jesus Christ. Um, I just, as we were singing that song, Dear Dying Lamb, Thy Precious Blood Shall Never Lose Its Power. That was the testimony of the early church, and that's the testimony of the church down through the ages. There have been, been other Nero-like situations, and the people of God have withstood them the same way the first century church did by looking to Christ. That's just uh, one small part of the book, and I and I haven't I didn't even get to the mark of the beast, so we'll have to deal with that next time, and then look at a little bit of the what uh, we can glean from the uh, information we're given about the hundred and forty-four thousand. Mainly, what I want to do in these times is just give us a frame of reference in in trying to come to an understanding of the book, not examine every verse and try to f figure all this out. In fact, I think we can get in trouble if we think we have to figure it all out. I don't think we're intended to figure out. I don't think it was written that way for every symbol and every aspect of every beast or, or dragon or creature, multi-headed creature. I don't think we're supposed to be able to figure out every symbol that's there. But I think we are supposed to get a general understanding of the, the truth that God has for us and we can learn from what, how the, the first century church understood these things to better understand it ourselves.